thank you for listening to this Calvary Aurora Bible study with Pastor Ed Taylor. We pray as you study through God's Word that you're blessed by God's abounding grace. Amen. Would you please take your Bibles, open them to the book of Joshua, Joshua chapter 17. Joshua chapter 17. Now in our verse-by-verse study in the Gospel of John, we are just out of the Garden of Gethsemane. In the Garden of Gethsemane, we address that time of Jesus' prayer in the Garden. And then remember Judas, he betrays Jesus and comes with this large group of Roman soldiers. Judas comes up and kisses Jesus and he's betrayed. And then we turn our attention to Peter in our time, in our study last time. And the topic of Peter was how he responded to everything. And we concluded that Peter was in a uh, form of backsliding. His response was to go away from the Lord. His response was to take steps away from the Lord. And we looked at those steps in depth. We titled the message, How to Be a Good Backslider. And the, and the intent was to catch people's eyes so that they, and their ears, so they might listen to the Bible study and learn how not to be a good backslider. If you weren't here with us, you should get the study. So it goes together with today's study. At the end of looking at Peter, we said and asked the question, if you're backsliding, this is what you're to do. And we turned to Revelation chapter 2. And I gave you three words. We didn't develop them very much, but we gave you three words as Jesus comes to the church in Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2 and says, I see a lot of great things going on. I see a lot of activity. But nevertheless, I have this against you. You've left your first love. And Jesus' instruction to the church in Ephesus is his instruction to us. Remember from where you have fallen, repent of that sin, and return or repeat the first works. And in a very simple way, that's God's word to anyone that turns away from him. Anyone that is on the way, on the path away from him like Peter was. Now, of course, Peter was told he was going to backslide. But at the same time was given the encouragement, when you return, strengthen your brethren. Well, backsliding often begins, of the many different sources, it begins with a sense of discontentment in our current situation. A sense of discontentment. Not being happy or satisfied with where we currently are, with what we currently have with the Lord. It can be some of the greatest that we've ever had and still not be content. It could be the fulfillment of the fullness of the promises of God. And if we're not careful, we can still find ourselves unhappy and discontent. Discontentment is a first step often of walking away and turning our backs on the Lord. Consider the children of Israel here in Joshua chapter 17. The nation of Israel was brought into what is known as the promised land. The land that God promised to them. The land that was given to them. And how difficult it must have been for this nation, this group of people, to be in Egypt as slaves. Under great bondage serving the Pharaoh. And how they must have wondered, what will happen to the promises of God? I mean, I know that God is there and I know what God has promised, but look at my current condition. 
This can't be the promises of God. This can't be what God has for me. And, and it was a tough time. We know that. It was a mo- you know, tough time is an understatement. We know it was difficult because according to Exodus chapter 6, verse 9, it says, Moses spoke thus to the children of Israel, but they did not heed Moses because of the anguish of spirit and the cruel bondage. Their experience in Egypt, this fledgling nation, was one of anguish of spirit and cruelty of bondage. And yet, what did God do? He raised up a deliverer by the name of Moses. And he used Moses to deliver the children of Israel out of Egypt. And he did deliver. And they were just about 11 days from entering into the land that God had promised. Leaving bondage and cruelty and going into the promises of God, the newness of life. It's a great picture, by the way, of the relationship that you and I have as believers with Jesus Christ. God took us from bondage and delivered us into new life, into the experiences of the promises that he's given to us. For, for the nation, it was just about an 11-day journey. That's it, 11 days, a couple weeks. A little bit under a couple weeks, and they would go from one of the worst experiences in their lives to one of the best experiences in their lives. And they were just, all that separated them, if you take out a map and you see where they were in Egypt, and you draw a line as the crow flies as how far it would have been, just about 11 days, 11 days, 11 days. That was until, until the faithless, fearful report of the 10 spies comes back. You see... They sent 12 spies into the land to check out the land. Kind of a reconnaissance trip. Tell us how it's going to be. Tell us what we're up against. And one leader from each of the tribes of Israel was sent into the promised land to bring back a report. How is it? What's it going to be? How difficult will it be? And two of the spies, two of the spies, two of the men came back with a glowing report. One of them was named Caleb. The other one was named Joshua. They came back and said, yes, it's exactly what God, there's giants in the land. There's difficulty in the land. There is great fruit in the land. We need to go. God said, go, we're going to go. The 10 other spies, they come back with this. They saw the same thing. They experienced the same thing. But they came back with such a different report. Isn't it interesting how you can have two people that see the same thing, experience the same thing, but come back with two very different perspectives? I I guess it could be the difference between an optimist and a pessimist. They see the same thing, they experience the same thing, but one comes back negative, one comes back positive. Well, the 10 came back negative and threw the entire nation into fear and faithlessness. Oh no, there are giants in the land. They're so big. It's going to be so hard. We shouldn't go. And it was because of their fear, fear, fearfulness and faithlessness that 11 days turned into 14,000 days. 11 days turned into 14,000 days. We often refer to that as the 40 years of wilderness wandering. Well, about 40 years is about 14,000 days. It's a long time to take an 11-day journey and turn it into 14,000 days. 
You know what the sad thing is? It's not just the faithlessness, and it's not just the fear, and it's not just the 40 years of wilderness wandering. It's not just taking 11 days and making it 14,000 days. What's even more tragic is that at the end of the 14,000 days, that first generation of Israelites died in the wilderness with the exception of Joshua and Caleb and their children and perhaps a few grandchildren. A whole generation died without faith. Their bones buried in the wilderness, being delivered from Egypt, but never really experiencing the promises of God. That's a great definition of the end result of backsliding, you know. Being delivered from sin, having the guilt and shame removed, no longer an enmity against God, no longer fighting God, and yet your whole life spent wandering aimlessly, never accomplishing the will and the purposes of God, taking something that was meant to be such a great benefit and blessing to you as a believer and instead wasting it and throwing it away with aimless living spent in this world. After the transition of leadership from Moses to Joshua, we now have the next generation entering into the land because the promises of God will not be thwarted. He will keep his promises. And when they come into the land at the beginning of the book, they come to the very first city, the city of Jericho. It's a big, large, formidable city with large walls and strong army. And they seek God out. They send a couple spies in. Rahab is the one that receives them, gives them information. They come back. But it wasn't the kind of uh, reconnaissance like, well, whatever they say is going to change our mind. It only established them. Joshua learned his lesson, and he sought the Lord. And the Lord gave him a military campaign. But it was a very abnormal campaign. Instead of getting your, your armaments and, and taking all of the military expertise, they were just told, hey, Joshua, take the guys and walk around the wall. And on the seventh day, walk around seven times and then yell, and the walls will fall down. And that's exactly what they did. So unexpected. I mean, it's, it's almost like uh, when you hear something from God, and it sounds so silly, and it sounds so counterintuitive, but it's the will of God for your life that all God wants you to do. He doesn't want you to figure it out. He just wants you to do it. He's figured it out for you. And what did they experience in Jericho? Victory. Victory victory but they were told when you go into Jericho don't take anything it all belongs to the Lord don't take anything and then we learned that Achan hid a few things under his tent they come into Ai they don't seek God it's a smaller city they get a military campaign worked up they go out they try to fight the city only to experience defeat and you can learn from the city of Ai when you fail to seek the Lord death will be a result and Achan is found out. You learn the lesson of sin in the camp. And thus is the history of the children of Israel. The ups and the downs. The ups of obedience, the downs of disobedience. It will mark the children of Israel even to this day as it marks humanity in your life and mine. It's important that we realize that God is going to keep his promises. And by the time we get to the end of Joshua 17, not only are they in the land, not only have they fought a few battles, but they have been victorious. And they are now getting their allotments. 
what was promised to them. The different areas of the land, which is known today as Israel, and all the area north and south, much larger than present-day Israel, they are getting what God promised them. That they are receiving all that God said they would get. And as we come to the end of chapter 17, we have the children of Joseph getting their lot in life. Receiving their lot. And this is the generation that wandered with their parents. This is the generation that watched it all occur. It isn't it true, whether it's been in our own lives or in the lives of others, we have seen wandering. We've seen people wander. I have seen over the years very strong, solid men and women of God used to great heights and capacities by the Spirit of God through a series of decisions. I know some of them that aren't even walking with God today. Have no desire to press into the things of God. Have no desire to live their lives with God as their priority Unfortunately, they're not living what Jesus instructed us to live, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. I know it's happened in my own life, even though it's, it's not something I, I want in my life, it's not something I desire in my life, but there have been seasons of wandering in my life. There have been seasons of doubting. That there have been seasons of questioning God. There have been seasons where one day I'm so strong and the next day I wonder, how did I get so weak? And everything in between. Now, have you guys ever had any times like that? Or are you just like upset and kind of concerned that your pastor is a little messed up? Are you guys doing a little elbow, time to find another church, honey? Because man, but I mean, I think in a small way, we all go through things or in a larger way. And, and I, I know my heart's desire is I don't want to wander. I, I don't want to find myself in a wandering place. I don't want to be in a place where I was, I was like I was in the world. Fortunately in my life, it's not been disqualifying or it hasn't been something where, you know, the Lord just says, okay, Ed, enough of that. But it's been enough to say, you know, I don't want to wander in my life. I spent too much of my past life before I knew Jesus Christ, wandering around this world, looking for satisfaction, looking for comfort, looking for ease. Peter described it in 1 Peter chapter 1, he described my life and yours apart from Christ as aimless conduct. Just going nowhere fast. Only to come up at the short end of the stick of sin and compromise with all of its consequences. You know, sin does bring consequence. Continually. We see that throughout the scriptures. Compromise, messing around, dabbling in sin. The Bible says in Galatians 6, don't be deceived. What you sow is what you reap. Guys, if you could only sit at my desk or the desk of the men and women that do biblical discipleship here. You know, if we could only put a little camera up in the corner. We could never do that um, because of confidentiality. But if you just were able to sit in and just listen in Uh, For the person across from my desk, as they're sharing their life story, looking for a Bible answer, and as they're sharing their life story, it's the absolute damaging uh, work of sin in their lives. Whether it was their sin, whether it was a sin of their spouse, or their friend, or their kids. If you could, I know we just read it in Exodus about the anguish of of the children of Israel, but you know, you can see anguish too. You can hear anguish. 
You, you can watch it. You can, you can feel at the deepest levels what anguish is in someone's life, especially as the result of sin and bondage, especially when they find themselves in the middle of it, especially when they find themselves as the source of the bad decisions. I, I think the closest thing that you could get to in that, if you're not the one talking to someone, is listening to our live radio broadcast during the week in the afternoons and listening to the people calling. Now, I know you can't really get a big grasp of it because we can't see them uh, and we're not sitting with them and we only get five or ten minutes with them. But, but five or ten minutes in some of the cases is more than enough to understand the devastation of sin in their lives. And there'll be seasons when I'm, I'm reaching out, I'm talking to someone, and I, I can, the Holy Spirit just reveals to me that whether it's the twinge of their voice or the way they put the question together, or I mean, I can just, I, I, the Lord just is able to reveal to me that this is much deeper than a radio five-minute, ten-minute conversation is going to be able to handle. It's so much more. They're only giving the tip of the iceberg. They're just chipping away. They finally took the first step, and, and we want to connect them with someone human in front of them so that they can walk through this together and, and make sure that they are strong in the things of God and get through this over time. But sin brings consequence, and the more that you hear of brokenness, it may, it may well stir you up to holy and righteous living so that you might be able to help others in times of need, that you might be able to stand on a strong footing, but you really don't need to sit where I sit. Studying through the Bible will give you that insight as we're shown the consequences of unbelief and irresponsible decisions all throughout the scriptures. Wandering around aimlessly is such a waste of time and so contrary to God's plan for your life and mine. Why such a great emphasis in the last few weeks on backsliding has been given to you is it's not God's heart for you to backslide. Certainly I know people listening on the radio right now You're backsliding, and the reason you're backsliding is because of any of the steps that you've made and taken, and you're listening to the radio because you don't want to be in church. It's not that you completely don't like God, but it's also you don't want to be in church because then there's going to be a heavy conviction. But with the radio, you can just turn it off. With the radio, you hear something, you can just turn off and move on to something else. And yet at the same time, the reason you're listening to the radio or somebody gave you this message and you're listening to it is because you do have a hunger for God. And it's a battle, like the Bible says in Romans chapter 7. The flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And the two are contrary to one another so that we don't do the things that we wish. Wandering around wastes a life. Which brings us to this section in Joshua chapter 17. There's a generation finally coming to receive what is theirs, their inheritance from God. They didn't deserve it. They didn't earn it. It's God's gift to them. And here are the children of Joseph. You'll draw your attention to verse 14. They received their lot and they answered Joshua saying, why have you given us but one lot and one portion to inherit? Since we are a great people, inasmuch as the Lord has blessed us until now. They, they aren't happy with what they've been given. They're not happy with the area of land. It's not big enough in their estimation. It's restricting them. They want more. They want something else. They're discontented. Unhappy. And I believe it's a relevant place for us to study in our culture today, where we are with everything that's going on around in the economy, 
not only the world economy, but your own? With our lives not only living up to what we expected or what we wanted or what we dreamed of? With our place perhaps in ministry being restrictive or at work, what we're doing for a living or where we work or where we're looking for work, where we live, there tends to be that same consistent battle we, that we have with our flesh concerning where we are presently in life. As the children of Joseph say, we have this lot, but we don't like it. We want more. And yet this was what God had given them. Even as your lot in life and mine is what God has given us, where he wants us, for his plan and purposes. And so let me ask you a question, one of many today. Have you ever felt like you've gotten a raw deal in life? Okay, that was supposed to be a responsive question. So let me ask it again. Have you ever felt like you've gotten a raw deal in life? I think we all have. Like you didn't get what you deserved or wanted? Thinking that what you have in life is so restricting? It's so small? We need more? Why is my marriage so restrictive? It's not what I thought it would be. Why am I still single? I feel such a restriction on my life of joy and happiness. Why is my ministry or what I'm doing for God seem to be so restrictive? Why am I working where I work? My job, it seems so constricting in my life. Why am I living where I live? Why is my apartment so restrictive? Why is the room that I rent so restrictive? By this time in my life, I should be. And I feel like the walls are pressing in on me. And because of that, you cry out to God like, Uh, the children of Israel do here, the sons of Joseph, and say, this isn't enough. I want more. This is not what I expected. Contentment, like many other things in our lives, have everything to do with faith. And, And let me put it away where you can understand. If we trust God where we are today, like if you could say, as I'm asking these questions, you could say, yes, I trust God where I am today. This is where God wants me. It may not be all that I had imagined, but I'm happy where I'm at. God is using me where I'm at, and I'm hopeful and looking forward to all that God may have for me. But even if he has nothing more, I'm happy with him. Now, if you're in a place where you're content where you're at, then believing God is very easy for you. <laughs> I mean, if you're happy where you're at, then trusting God and having much faith is an easy thing where you're taking steps of faith and you're happy and you're joyful and yes, Lord, I'm so satisfied. You're so good to me. If we like where we're at, we're much quicker to trust God. If we don't like where we're at, it may even get to the point where you blame God and you're mad at him and you're upset and asking God to change the circumstances of your life. Attached to blaming God also comes this sense of wanting to live someone else's life. The psalmist went through that in Psalm 73. You can jot it down for homework. He's looking at all those that were successful and happy and they don't even love God, but everything that they had, everything that they wanted, oh God, it's just not fair and it's just not right. And then toward the end, the Psalm of Asaph toward the middle or towards the, you know, three quarters way through, he says, I didn't understand. It was too much to understand until I went into the sanctuary of the Lord. Then I understood. And God gave him a dose of contentment and perspective. Why would God put us in a restrictive place? It's a great question to ask. 
Why would God put us in a restricted place? Well, listen, this is a key I want you to hold on to. Something I wish I would have learned much earlier in my Christian walk. Something that will release you in so many ways to trust God more and more. And it's simply this. God is more interested and concerned with developing you internally than he is in expanding you externally. God is interested on the inside much more than he's interested on the outside, which poses a big problem for us because all we tend to pay attention to is the outside. And we pay attention to behavior modification and changing this and changing that. And hey, some of the things that we're doing, we certainly need to change, but God is working on the inside. And he's wanting to develop in us a depth of maturity. He's wanting to give us a sterling character much more than he's interested in giving us more of what we want in life. It's so important to hold on to in times where the enemy is picking at you in an area of discontentment, where your flesh is crying out for more when God says be satisfied where you are. God is more concerned with maturity than ministry. Or it's often been said, God is more interested in the minister than he is in the ministry. He's more interested in who you are than what you do. And when who you are matches the work of God in your life, then what you do has so much more spiritual significance. Whatever restrictions and confinements you are experiencing in the present is for the purpose of your maturity and your spiritual growth. And that's how God will use them in your life. So then, here you are in that place perhaps, or will be just up ahead. There's one last question to ask, and that is, what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to do in this confining, restrictive place in my life? Well, let's read the rest of the text, and I want to give you three things today to consider and pray over. Verse 14 of Joshua 17, the children of Joseph spoke to Joshua saying, why have you given us but one lot and one portion to inherit? Since we are a great people, inasmuch as the Lord has blessed us until now. So Joshua answered them, if you are a great people, then go up to the forest country and clear a place for yourself there in the land of the Perizzites and the giants, since the mounds of Ephraim are too confined for you. But the children of Joseph said, verse 16, the mountain country's not enough for us, and all the Canaanites who dwell in the land of the valley have chariots of iron, both those who are of Beth Shean and its towns and those who are of the valley of Jezreel. And Joshua spoke to the house of Joseph, to Ephraim and Manasseh, saying, You are a great people and have great power. You shall not have only one lot, but the mountain country shall be yours. Although it is wooded, you shall cut it down, and its farthest extent shall be yours, for you shall drive out the Canaanites, though they have iron chariots and are strong. Three things I want to give you. Number one, What do I do when I'm in a constricting, confining place? Number one, develop what God has already given you. Develop what God has already given you. That's what Joshua tells them in general. Take what you have and develop it. You have what you have, so go up and develop it. If you're a great people, don't ask for more. Clear out what you already have. I love that. He says in verse 15, clear out a place for you. Clear out a place for you. There's a popular phrase that's used today to describe that. 
one that I'm sure you've heard, perhaps you've even used. And it's the phrase, bloom where you're planted. Bloom where you're planted. Clear out what you have. I'm reminded of what Paul the Apostle wrote, inspired by the Holy Spirit. He wrote it to the church in the city of Philippi. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and murmuring, that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Develop what you have. Go up and clear it out. Make a place and make a home where you are. Be satisfied and take what you have and develop it. Now the world's always emphasizing and always placing an emphasis upon what you do, what you do. And that seems to be the greatest level of value uh, for people in society, what you do. And, and what level of society you are in because of what you do. But the Lord is always concerned with who you are. He's always concerned with what's going on inside of us. And Joshua in practice is telling the children of Joseph, take what you have and develop it. And the spiritual application for us is, church, take what you have and develop it. Be faithful with it. Number two. First of all, develop what you've been given. Number two, clear out the high places. Joshua tells them to go and clear out the high places. Look at verse 18. But the mountain country shall be yours, although it is wooded, although it is wooded, you shall cut it down to its farthest extent shall be yours. He says, go into the high country and clear it out. The high country is yours. Cut down the wood. Take possession of the area and clean it up. And he specifies a very specific area. The mountaintop. The mountaintop area. You know, biblically, by way of symbolism, those mountaintop times often speak of our intimacy and personal devotion with the Lord. If you've been around the church long enough, you know that when we have a men's retreat or a women's retreat or a marriage retreat or we get away, even if we don't go any higher in elevation, we will often speak of that as going up to the mountains. We're going to go to the mountaintops and pray. We're going to go get away. We're going to have what is called a mountaintop experience where we leave everything, all the day-to-day life, work and job and house and dishes and kids, and we're able to get away for a short amount of time to seek the Lord, have a clarity of mind, open our ears, the mountaintops. We love to get to the mountaintops. Mountaintops often reflect both a devotion and a sacrifice to God. Whereas we'll see in a moment, as opposed to the mountaintops, the valleys, well, those often represent in the Bible difficult times. That's what the psalmist said. The psalmist even used that illustration. Even though I go through the valley of the shadow of death, the valleys often represent the low times in our lives where the mountaintops represent the high times of devotion and sacrifice. It's on the mountaintop in the scriptures that Moses receives the law that Elijah wins the battle, that Jesus appears and is transfigured, where the disciples draw near in prayer. You know, it was in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed. Jesus prayed both in Gethsemane and on the mountaintop. But for the disciples, the garden for them was a time of sleeping. 
but we often find the disciples going up to the mountaintops and praying. So what is God saying to us? As Joshua is telling the, the children of Joseph to go up and clear and cut out the wood, what is, what is God saying to us except to examine where we are in our personal walk with the Lord of intimacy and devotion? So another question needs to be asked. How's your mountaintop lately? How is your time of devotion and sacrifice to the Lord? Let me ask a more probing question. When's the last time you really sacrificed anything for your God? Oh, I'm not talking about the regular tithes and offerings that we give or the regular times of service, but I mean, when's the last time in your mountaintop time with the Lord that he spoke to you and called for you to sacrifice? Or when's the last time you really had a sweet time of entering in and intimacy and devotion? See, when you're discontented, time with the Lord kind of becomes frustrating. You get a little frustrated with God because his answer, the answers to your heart's desires seem to be a silence from God. He's not opening up avenues. He's not opening up doors. Instead, he's saying, bloom where you're planted. You're like, I don't want to do that. I want more. And, and so when you begin to hear those types of answers from God, you stop going to God. And you just kind of deal with what you've got to deal with. And you start taking in different ways to cope and different coping mechanisms instead of entering in and trusting God with your life and trusting God with where you are. If this is an area in your life that's lacking, that is weaker then you totally understand now why you're wrestling so much with discontentment. You see, mountaintops aren't about seeking more of something. Mountaintops are about seeking more of someone. And as we grow in our devotional lives, we are yearning for more of him and, long, and, then, and less longing for more of something else. Less devotional time means more longing for the things of this earth and things get back flip back upside down. No longer seeking first the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God gets set aside and we then seek first for these other things. This always leaves us empty. Now, turn over, would you, to the left to Deuteronomy chapter 20. Going up into the mountain area and cutting down trees is very instructive for us. And in Deuteronomy chapter 20, which is to the left from Joshua, Deuteronomy chapter 20, God previously told the nation of Israel how they were to cut down trees. God is interested even in how they're to cut down trees. And as we turn to Deuteronomy 20, we're going to learn that when the children of Israel were to cut down trees, they were to be discriminating. They were to discriminate between those trees that were bearing fruit and those trees that were not bearing fruit. Notice with me Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 19. God tells the children of Israel, when you besiege a city for a long time while making war against it to take it, you shall not destroy its trees by wielding an axe against them. You couldn't just clear cut the forest and and have that nice, brand new, fresh beginning, which is what what happens in discontentment. You're just like, man, I'm out of here. I'm out of here. That's when people divorce. I'm out of here. That's when people just pick up and move without being led by the Lord. I'm out of here. I can't tell you. I'm done. So when people quit the church, quit this church, that church, or quit church altogether, I'm done. It's enough. You can't clear cut the trees. When you go in, you can't just take an axe and just go in and just cut them all down. Instead, notice, 
If you can eat of them, verse 19, do not cut them down to use in the siege. For the tree of the field is man's food. Only the trees which you know are not trees for food you may destroy and cut down to build siege works against the city that makes war with you until it's subdued. There were trees that bear fruit and there were trees that didn't. And they couldn't go in and just slice everything down. They were commanded to leave the the fruit-bearing trees. Don't cut them down. Why? Because they're your food. They're going to nourish you and feed you. The problem is, is all these other trees in your spiritual life are blinding you from the fruit-bearing trees in the midst of your life. Uh, There's a saying in the world that we use. Don't lose the forest for the trees. Where a tree gets right in front of you and you can't see anything around it. You lose the eternal perspective. You lose the bigger picture. And you're stuck with that dead tree that's in front of you. Well, this is what God says to us. You go up into the high countries and you cut those trees down. And just like Paul would write in the book of Romans, chapter 8, verse 28. All things, God's working all things together for the good. For those that love him, those that are called according to his purpose. So when you cut those trees down, you don't just burn them and you waste them. You use them for war. You can use them in the war. As we are in the spiritual battle for contentment and satisfaction, for spiritual growth. Use them in the war. Cut the trees down that are not bearing fruit in your life. And I'm sure that the Lord God Almighty will reveal to you all sorts of fruitless trees in your life that need to be cleared out. They're getting in the way. They're obstructing your view. They're obstructing your growth. There are things in your life. I'm confident of this. There are things in your life that are even giving shade to the enemy, leading you to compromise towards sin in your life. You have to be willing to say, you have to be willing to tell God this, God, whatever gets between me and you has to go. You have to be willing to say that or you'll never get out of this rut that you're in, laying it all out for God to deal with. Finally, Number three, number one, develop what you have. Number two, go up into the high country and clear it out. Cut down the dead trees. And then thirdly, drive out the enemies in the low places. Who was in the low places? Well, we learn in verse 16, the Canaanites who dwell in the land in the valleys have chariots of iron. Remember, when the children of Israel came into the promised land, it was filled with the enemies of God. There were the Perizzites. There were the Canaanites. There were the termites. <laughs> Stick with me, guys. We're almost at the end. Stay with me. I know it's a rather heavy message where the Holy Spirit's digging deep into some of your hearts. But the Canaanites, they had taken up residence in the valley. The thing about the book of Joshua that so concerns me in my spiritual life, in how I relate to God, not you. You can concern you if you want to be concerned with me. But for my life, is over and over again, it's repeated in the book of Joshua. They didn't completely drive them out. They didn't completely drive them out. They didn't completely drive them out. It said as much If you see in verse 12, look at verse 12 of chapter 17. The children of of Manasseh could not drive out the inhabitants of those cities, but the Canaanites were determined to dwell in the land. Listen, the enemy of your soul is determined to dwell in your life 
and determined to destroy you. He is determined to take you out. He's determined to kill, to steal, and destroy as much. And because of his determination, many of us just walk away and stop fighting. Joshua tells the children of Joseph, get rid of the Canaanites in the valley. Go, to the low, go up to the highlands, cut down the dead trees, go into the lowlands and get rid of the Canaanites. Canaanites were formidable. No small thing, even as our flesh and the devil can be in this world system. To have iron chariots, the equivalent in our mind today would be to go to battle with a slingshot against a country with a top-notch air force. You know, you're going to take them on with a slingshot and, and it's not going to happen. Or in modern day warfare, a, a chariot would be the equivalent of a modern day tank that could fo- shoot armament miles ahead. I mean, they were in the valley. They weren't moving. This is where they were. This, as far as they're concerned, the Canaanites, is, this is my land. I don't care what your God says. I don't care how many people have, have you've defeated. We're not going. And Joshua says, you go into the lowland in verse 18. He says at the end, you shall drive out the Canaanites, though they have iron chariots. He's even a deal. Who cares what they have? You need to go to the lowlands and drive out the Canaanites from the valley. Canaanites representing the world, the flesh, and the devil, our enemy. Listen, while up on the mountaintop in our devotion, we'll find fruit-bearing trees and a few of dead wood in the low areas, The low areas represent things in our life that we know to be sin. The low areas of our lives are things that we know to be sin. We might be seeking more in our lives, but God is waiting for us to deal with what we already have. To deal with something that we know to be sin. Because more comes from faithfulness in our lives than unfaithfulness. And it could be that the confinements and the restrictions that God has allowed in your life are there for the intent purpose to reveal to you the greatest areas of your personal need. You've got to drive out the Canaanites. You need to take what's yours, develop it, clear out the dead wood, and deal with known sin. Joshua says to the discontented, develop what you have, clear it out. If you're a great people, and he does tell them, you are a great people. And we can say that today in our relationship with Jesus Christ. We are a great people by faith in him. So if you're a great people, then clean out the dead wood and clean house and be faithful with what you have because God wants to grow us up into maturity. And he's not so concerned with your current position or your title or your rank or your fame. He's concerned with your heart in his kingdom. And when we feel like we're so limited, remember God is still at work. He's growing us, stretching us, and preparing us for his perfect will. Don't forget, discontentment is often one of the first steps away from the Lord. Remember what it was with Peter? It was self-confidence. He was overconfident in himself. He was all about himself. And that's where discontentment takes us, all about ourselves. And what do we do? Develop, clear out cut down, drive out the enemy. Father, we ask for your Holy Spirit to make these truths come uh, home to us. We ask for you to 
speak to us in a way that only you can. You use the gift of pastor-teacher for sure, but we admit to you that only the Holy Spirit can teach us. You promised that the Spirit would lead us into all truth. You promised that the Spirit would guide us into all truth. You promised that the Spirit would bring to our remembrance the things that we've been taught, the things that we have learned. And so, Father, we commit ourselves and submit ourselves to you and your will today. I know there's a lot going on among us. I know there's a lot going on in our community. I know that there's a lot of discontentment and frustration for a variety of reasons. Father, I know that there's a tendency toward wandering. There's a tendency toward discouragement or uh, just being weary in the battle. Maybe not discouragement at all, but just tired. It's a long battle. It's a difficult one. But may you fill us afresh today with your spirit. May you have your way with us as we submit ourselves to you. We don't want to backslide. We don't want to walk away from you. We don't want to just be this cultural Christian who, who has a face of Christianity, but deep down we have no desire to live for you. Bring us back, as you told the church in Ephesus, where it's needed to remember from where we have fallen, repent, and repeat the first works. We know from this time forward in our Bible studies, we're going to be going to the cross. We're going to be watching you, you know, beaten beyond recognition. We're going to watch you be hung on a cross in between two common thieves, insurrectionists. And we're going to, you know, really moving up in our studies right up to Easter, God, as we think of the resurrection and the power of your strength. Lord, I pray for those that are here today. Just draw them near with your cords of love. Let them be encouraged. Give them some tools of what to handle, what to attack, what needs to be cut down and cut out. What needs your attention? What needs your obedience in our lives? And may we meet you there for you to empower us to fulfill and follow through with all that you have. In Jesus' name, amen. We pray that you've been touched by this study from Calvary Aurora. For prayer or a copy of this study, call area code 303-628-7200. Be blessed this week in the Lord.